0: Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Everyday Millionaire podcast. My name is Patrick Franci, and I'm the CEO and managing partner of the Real Estate Investment Network. In addition to being a business owner, I'm also a real estate investor. I'm a coach, a husband, recently a grandfather. Now, along with that, I'm also committed to stretching beyond what I've achieved by continuing to elevate in living a fulfilled life by making a positive difference in my world. I'm going to invite you to join me as I delve into the details of the many wins of my guests in achieving their goals, along with, shall we say, the frustrations of the occasional teal gone wrong, because my guests are here to help you learn by talking about what's real for them in business and investing in real estate. From the life they're now able to live to the person they've become along the way as they pursued their dreams and having the freedom they've gained by building a sustainable financial future for them and their family. Well, good day, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this episode of the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. Now, as always, and before I introduce my next guest, I want to start by thanking you, the listeners, first for listening and also for your feedback to the show as well as to remind you and encourage you actually to send any of your comments, your questions, suggestions for the show directly to me at CEO at raincanada.com. That's CEO at reincanada.com. I I do respond to all of my emails. So thanks for sending that feedback. Now, if you're also inclined, it would be great if you were to rate the show and comment on iTunes, brings it up to the top of the list and all the things that it does, or Stitcher or whatever other platform you happen to use to listen in. And certainly, why don't you follow us on the Everyday Millionaire Facebook page, Happy to see your comments there. So, thanks again for any feedback that you provide the Everyday Millionaire team and I. It's appreciated and we do implement it. So, keep it up. Now, let's get the show started. I met my guest today, kind of somebody introduced me to him. I did some research on him. I went, wow, this guy is really, really cool. He's an American and he is a real estate investor, he's a realtor, he's certainly a business owner, and he's an entrepreneur. His name is Dr. Matt Motil. Now, Matt's worked with hundreds of real estate investors from around the world to help them grow their wealth and their passive income through remote real estate investments. He leads a retail real estate team whose agents work with buyers and sellers in all 50 states. Now, in his spare time, and aside from spending time with his beautiful wife and family, Matt teaches college courses as an adjunct professor at a handful of colleges and universities. Now, before real estate, Matt spent 17 years as a project manager and as a licensed engineer in the construction industry, building bridges, highways, and industrial plants throughout the United States. Through all of his experiences and his drive to help others succeed, Matt's actually leveraged his purpose and passion to become an author, a mentor, a teacher, and to help people all over the world unleash their abilities to achieve their highest potential. I look at Dr. Matt as kind of a walking contradiction, but one of the coolest guys I've ever talked to. Looking forward to having this conversation and sharing it with you. So without any further delay, let's welcome our guest, Dr. Matt Motil. Dr. Matt Motel, welcome to the Everyday Millionaire podcast. Excited to have you on the show. A little bit different for a guest, uh, but I'm, I'm really thrilled to, uh, for you to take the time to get on the show. So welcome.
1: Thank you. Yeah, excited to be here.
0: So, Dr. Matt, first off, let me ask you this before we get going. What's your doctorate in?
1: My doctorate is in business. So in- I, I have a couple of people that affectionately call me Dr. Business.
0: Dr. Business. <laughs> I like it. I like it a lot. <laughs> so right away, let's come out of the gate. Tell me a little bit about uh, Dr. Matt Motil and what you do, and uh, let's just talk a little bit about your business model. First off, for listeners, you're based out of the U.S., Cleveland, Ohio, and uh, so right. but tell me a little bit about your business and what you do.
1: Well, our core our core business is real estate holding. So we we're buy and hold investors. That's what we've been doing for years, and and we've expanded it recently to try to get uh, more people involved, not just from a, you know, like capital raise standpoint, but also to help people get into the real estate investing world, create passive income and all that kind of stuff. And so we have, we have two sides of the business. One's the, really the investment side, which is helping other people get into deals in the markets that we serve. Uh, our predominant market here is in Northeast Ohio. And then we also do deals in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, which is, uh, about two and a half hours east of here. and and then Detroit, Michigan and Southeast Michigan, which is, uh, about two hours or so west of here. So those are the three markets that we're in. Uh, and we do deals with where we'll help people that are remote. Like I would say 99% of our, uh, clients are investors that don't live in the markets that we serve. They really don't have the boost on the ground. They don't have all of the resources. And so we, we can help find the deals and then provide all of those resources for them to help them be successful. Um, and that's, that's kind of, a uh, something that we've started just this year. Uh, and up to this point, like I said, we're, uh, you know, we are buy and hold investors. And so we're always looking for good deals and always looking for money to take them down. So we work with a lot of private money lenders, um, more, We like those people more than we like the uh, conventional banks and the hard money people. Um, and so we're always looking to do those kinds of things. So that's that's kind of our core business.
0: Gotcha. Now, what was kind of enticing and what I really liked about the thought of having you on the show is that this is kind of a, this is a game that you're playing now, but it, always, it hasn't always been that way. And you've actually right. wrote a book about your journey and about your story. But let's go back a little bit. You know, you've know, you got a doctorate in business. Uh, you haven't always been a real estate investor. So take me back to how your real estate investing journey kind of started, like what, what drove you? So with the Real Estate Investment Network, with Rain, and we use the phrase and have for many years now, treat your real estate investing like a business. Now you started real estate investing and then you kind of took it right to the next level to where you are today but go back to what got you into real estate investing, even to begin with.
1: Right. Well, I, you know, it's funny because I didn't always run it like a business. I, it was a side hustle for a really long time. And I, you know, looking back on it, obviously you never try to have regrets. I mean, you you know, you can always say, Oh, well, what if I had done this or done that? But the thing was I really got into real estate uh, by accident and it was around the year 2000. And I was going to school for my undergrad. My bachelor's degree was in mechanical engineering. And so while I was at school, um, my my younger brother was also attending the same university and my parents got sick and tired of paying room and board uh, for us to live on campus. And so they bought a house kind of over by the engineering uh, buildings. And soon after that, and so my brother and I moved in there and my parents basically just owned this house that my, my brother and I could live in. So they didn't have to pay room and board anymore. And, uh, pretty soon after we, they did that, uh, my parents moved out of the area and it kind of fell on me to maintain the property, make sure that somebody was living in the extra bedrooms. And so I was collecting rent. I was making sure that everything was taken care of. I was paying all the bills, utilities, and all that kind of stuff. And later on, I looked back on that and I I thought, oh man, I, I was basically managing property. Um. It, I didn't know that that's what I was doing. It was just kind of like I'm, you know, my parents aren't here, so I'm helping them out because I'm the oldest of the kids kind of a thing. Didn't really think much about, oh, this is what I'm doing. Around the same time, I read the book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, which I always tell everybody is kind of like the gateway drug to real estate investing. It is. Um, you know, Robert doesn't say that it's, you know, he would go out and say, well, it's not a real estate investing book. And I say the same thing to people. I'm like, my book's not a real estate investing book people, uh, too, but a lot of people read my book, they read his book and then they go, I really want to get into real estate. So it's just kind of funny how the stories or the anecdotes that you tell about, here's how I kind of did it. And then people latch on to it and they go, Oh, I want to do that too. Um, so I read, I read that book and I probably read, shoot, this was back in the nineties. And so I read everything that I could get my hands on about real estate in general, real estate investing. I read a bunch of books that I knew I like that. I, I didn't retain any of the information, like some of the other books in the, in the rich dad series about like loopholes, legal loopholes of real estate investing, um, here in the States and that I've, I've since reread now that I actually have more real estate and I actually have the experience that I know. You know, and so now I can kind of take that information and put it, put it with practical application and go, Oh, okay. I get that now. Um, but I really kind of absorbed everything I could. I was just fascinated with it. Uh the interesting thing though was as much as I was interested in it, and as much as I was trying to get as much information as I could, I really kind of had this thought process or this mentality that I'm in school to learn to be an engineer. I'm gonna when I graduate, I'm gonna go be an engineer first, and I'll use money, I'll use income from my job to fund, you know, the the real estate stuff that I'm inspired and and interested in doing. The reality is though, looking back on it, is that one, you really don't make a whole lot of money as a new, you know, as a new college graduate, even if you're in an industry like engineering, which is better paid than a lot of other industries, um, you know, you get hit with a lot of stuff right off the bat, and you know, and then student loans start to get, you know, added up and and things of that nature. And the next thing you know, it's basically all my money's going towards living. I don't really have a lot left over to do the things that I really want to do, and so life kind of gets in the way. Um, I have friends of mine that around that are around my same age that didn't go the college route, jumped into real estate investing, and never looked back. And so it's really kind of interesting to see. Okay, we both got interested in real estate around the same time. I did it kind of as a side thing for years. And here's where I'm at today, which is great, right I mean, I'm not complaining, but I see where some other people are that have you know that that really did it full time that really took it and ran it like a business from the get-go and I'm like, oh wow, you know that's a significant difference, considering that we both were about the same age and we both kind of got in the game around the same time um but for me, a lot of what I did in real estate right off right out of the bat was i was I was flipping houses, but i I didn't have a whole lot of money, so I would live in them and I would fix them up and then I would sell them. So I would buy something that was slightly distressed that I could get a low down payment loan on. Uh, so it had to be halfway decent so that the banks would actually loan on it. Um, and then I would just work on it. Like I grew up, my dad's in construction. I grew up in the construction industry. That's what I ultimately ended up in, uh, after I was done with college. And and so I kind of grew up. With some skills, I knew how to do some things. We had done some projects around the house from time to time. And so I had some basic knowledge of, you know, here's how to do it. And I honestly don't believe there's a better way to learn something than by just diving in and struggling with it, screwing it up, fixing it, you know, to where you you just kind of figure it out as you go. And this was a little bit before the even the day and age of YouTube. I mean, now with YouTube, shoot, you can you could probably flip an entire house just by YouTubing, like, how do I rip out cabinets? Well, how do know, I install cabinets? It, it, interesting. <laughs> I,
0: I, I just saw a YouTube uh, video. You speak of that. Uh, a mom who'd gone through a bad divorce or something with a, an abusive husband. Anyways, her and her four kids, five kids built a house via, you know, through From the YouTube. Through YouTube, watching YouTube. They built a whole 3,500 square foot house. It was a, a fascinating That's story. Awesome. She wrote a book about it. But before we get, uh, there's a couple things I want to pick up on that you were talking about, Matt, that you know, I think time and time again, you know, you realize now that you started investing. I mean, you're still a relatively young guy. Uh, how old are you now? Sure. I'm 37. Yeah. You're, yeah, you're young. So when we, when you consider that your friends, you know, they came out of college or university, they started, you know, investing in real estate right away, treated it like a business. You look at it and go, holy cow, I started late. You know, there's, you know, we're, you know, I look, I didn't buy my first investment property until I was 42. You know, so it's, it's like, you know, and, and it was a buy and hold deal. And, and because my focus was on business, it was just a different time in my life. Mm -hmm. So no regrets. You started when you started, you've done some cool things. And, and before we get into what you're doing now, let's go back a little bit. Now you talked about your dad being in construction. You went to university for engineering and, and you came out of that with that focus in mind, maybe that career, and then you got off that path, but let's go back even further. Now, do you have siblings?
1: I do. I have one brother.
0: You know, because I like to really kind of connect the dots for people. When you look at environment and you know some people, how they in fact create the success that they do and where they started. When you go back in that time, your dad was in construction. Was he a business owner or was he working for somebody?
1: No, he was in management. So, you know, my dad went to uh, West Point, the United States Military Academy, uh, and then when he got out, finished a degree to become a teacher, and so he taught high school math and he coached track and football. And after I was born, he realized that this was, you know, early, early eighties. At this point, he realized that, you know, he's got a family and teachers back then were making, you know, like $7,000 a year, I think to to teach. And he made extra, you know, a couple extra hundred bucks to coach. And it was kind of this thought process that he had of, I'm never going to live a comfortable lifestyle making $7,000 a year. So he went back to school after I was already around and, and basically finished an engineering degree that he had somewhat started while he was at the military Academy. And that's how he got into construction, but he jumped right into management, like project engineering, project management type stuff. And, um, and so he was always working for somebody else. Uh, but he was, you know, he was basically like middle management. So where do you think you got your
0: entrepreneurial spirit from? Where did, where did that show up for you? Was it, was it something that just evolved or is there a history somewhere in your family?
1: No. Well, you know, it's interesting. I, I don't come really from a family of business owners. And so, you know, and that's really my story is I was, I was definitely pushed towards the front doors of the college system because my parents were both first generation college, you know, in their families. And I believe to this point, I don't think any of their siblings have, have gone to college. And so they're still the only people in their generation to go. Um, there's not really a whole lot of my cousins that, you know, I have a big family. My dad's got seven brothers and sisters. My mom's got two sisters. And so I probably have like, I don't know, two dozen cousins. I don't know that there's my cousin, Sean does, he has a master's degree. But aside from that, like, I don't think there's anybody else that even has a four-year degree besides me and my one cousin. And so the thing was like, my parents always had this thought process of, we want to provide you a better life than we had. We want to provide you more opportunity than what we had. And so for them, thinking of having kids that are going to enter college in the nineties, the thought process in our culture really was If you want to be something, if you want to go to the next level, you need a college degree. And so there really wasn't an option for my brother or I at all. It was, you're going to college.
0: That's what you're (laughs) going to do. What you want to study. (laughs) Yeah.
1: You're going to, you know, and I even, I even thought, well, maybe I'll go to West Point. Like my dad did. And he was like, I did that because I had no other option. He's like, I did that so that you wouldn't have to. He's like, pick a great state school, figure out what you want to study. And just go and do it. And that's, we, we wanted to provide this opportunity for you. And it, and it was like, there was really never a thought of, well, maybe I'll go and get a trade. Maybe I'll go start a business. It was just, I was raised in a a family that, neither of my parents did that. Um, and my mom was a teacher. My dad was a project manager in construction. And so it was just kind of like, well, you know, the nature versus nurture, right? I was just, this is what you do. And so. I decided, well, um, you know, I'll go talk to a guidance counselor and they said, well, you're really good at math and science. You should go into engineering. And I'm like, well, uh, my dad's an engineer. So cool. I'll do that. And and that's really like in a nutshell, the the decision-making paradigm of an 18 year old kid, right. Is you have no life experience. You really don't know anything. You don't really know who you are yet. Your brain isn't fully formed until you're like 24, 25 years old. And so then you've got somebody who just basically goes, well, this is what you're good at. So why don't you study? Pick something off this list of, based on your aptitudes, this is what you should go do. Which is what I did.
0: Was that engineering? Uh, at, you know, when you reflect back on it, wasn't was it something that you actually had an interest in? You obviously got through it. Yeah,
1: I, no, I, I did. Um, you know, and it's going to sound a little masochistic, but I actually really enjoy it. I love the number crunching. I'm very number driven. Um, I also have a creative side. I'm pretty balanced from that standpoint, but uh when it came time to studying for like the licensing after school's over you have to you know if you want to get a uh, a license in the United States you have to have 4 years of work experience you got to take an 8 hour exam i really liked studying for that test just running numbers solving problems doing that kind of thing that was fun so it wasn't that i didn't enjoy it it wasn't that i didn't like it it wasn't that i wasn't good at it the thing was it was it came down to and I I want to word this in a right way so that somebody listens to this later on and they don't go, Oh, you're just bashing on employees. The thing is, I feel like we all have value, right? And I don't necessarily feel that we're all paid what we're really worth. Uh, and this is especially true in the employee space, right? Sure. And so, you know, I was out in industry working in construction and you know, companies would send you out of town to go work on jobs. You'd be away from your family. You'd be you know away from home for extended periods of time and you'd be working on massive, massive projects. The biggest project I ever managed as a product manager was just, just under a hundred million dollars, which we completed in about 18 months. And at the end of the day, when you looked at what everybody was paid for what they were doing, on the, as like a percentage of the overall profitability of the job and, and just the size of the, and the magnitude of what you were doing, it was almost laughable that here we were basically killing ourselves, sacrificing our time, you know, with our family and loved ones and all that kind of stuff. And you're, and you're really not paid what you're worth. So you
0: felt an imbalance. So this was, you. this was a number of years ago. How old would you have been back at that time, Matt, where you've, where you're actually feeling the imbalance going, hold it, what's going on here? This, they're making like zillions and I'm not,
1: I felt that way kind of right out of the bat because see, when I graduated from high school, I joined the labor union. I needed a, I wanted a job in the summertime. And so I, you know, I told my dad, I said, I want to go get, I want to make some money. What can I do? And he said, well, you should join the union, go join the labor union, be a laborer. He goes, I, I can put you on a couple of our bridge projects. You know, you can work for one of our foremen. This would have been 1998 I was making almost $20 an hour as an 18 year old kid. Um, and this is, you know, American dollars. And when I left college and I got a full-time job, I was making less per hour than what the union laborers were making at that point, because their scale had continued to go up because they've got the unions and stuff. And so I was actually the lowest paid person on the project with a four year degree and all this and all that. And I remember thinking at the time, wow, there is an inequity here. This doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. And I remember telling my dad that, and I said, you know, this kind of sucks. Like, what the hell's up with this? And he goes, look, that person, that's what they make. They can't make more than that. When when the union raises their wage, they'll make more. He goes, a couple years from now, you're going to be at the next level. And then you're going to be at the next level. And he goes, and your earning potential is going to go up every level of the way. And I was like, okay, cool. You know, yeah, my earning potential is so much higher. And I, that was kind of like, it, it, it appeased me to the point where, you know, the last year I was in construction as a senior project manager. At this point, I had been in the industry for about 15 years and I was making about one and a quarter. So I was making 125,000 a year was my salary. And as salaries go, especially in Midwest America, that's a really good salary. The average household income in my town that I live in right now is $60,000 a year. Sure, you're in the upper so,
0: 1% you're in the upper 1%. Yeah, of so the I was,
1: I was making two times the household income, just me and my mm-hmm. wife worked too. And I felt, I really felt like I had it going on. I was in my, you know, mid 30s, and here I was like, you know, I'm, I'm the man.
0: You're rocking it. And
1: looking back on it, it was like $125,000 a year really is not that much money. And my wife was making probably mid 60s. She was an assistant manager in a cancer unit at a hospital. She's a, a nurse now. She's a nurse practitioner. And so together, combined household income, we were right around 200k. And again we were in we're in a nicer part of town where the average household income is 60 you know in cleveland proper the average household income is 26 so here we are 10xing the average of the major metro and we were broke like literally we had nothing left over at the end of the month it was and we we were living in a nice house but it wasn't crazy you know, we definitely knew people that had houses that were worth four times what ours was. I mean, we had never, we had never really leveled up the house as we had continued to grow the income. We drove nice cars, but we weren't driving crazy. You know, we weren't driving like exotics or something like that. And we had student loans and we had kids and we had, you know, bills and things like that. And at the end of the day, it was like, we're comfortable, but there's nothing. We're not living crazy. We're not living on the hog. Where's all this money going? And it, when you sat down and you looked at it it was like, well, this is just what it costs to live comfortable lifestyle. And that was to me the point where I went, well, this is screwed up Mm. because, and not, not saying I watch TV and I, you know, and you see like athletes and movie stars and things like that live in these lavish lifestyles, but you see other people. Like if, if you go out my office again, we're in a, a nicer part of town, but you go out my office and you turn right. There's a there's a, a row of cars and it's Cleveland Motorsports. And yeah. they've got it starts with Mercedes-Benz and it, next door is Porsche and then there's Maserati and then next to that is uh, Aston Martin and then Rolls-Royce. And I remember driving past that every day and I remember thinking who the hell can afford these things? It's <laughs> so true. Yeah. And, and I thought, how in the world does this place even stay in business when they're selling cars? You know, the, the cheapest Rolls Royce you can buy, right? It's like 300 K brand new. So I'm like, and I'm sitting here in a house that I paid one, $190 for, And I go, this car hundred thousand dollars more than what I paid for my house. Who in the hell can buy these cars? And it wasn't just that it was like, you know, next to that you've got two hundred thousand dollar cars, then you've got a hundred thousand dollar cars, and then you go to Porsche and you've got, you know, upper nineties to one fifties, and then Mercedes-Benz. I mean, you can get in a low level Mercedes for probably around forty or fifty, I think. But even that you go, Who's driving these things? Who's paying for these
0: things? Do you know what my answer to that question was years ago before when I was, you know, many years ago when I was getting into business and trying to figure it out. And I, I, would look at these cars or boats and all the rest, and I just said, it's got to be drugs and prostitution. That's the only way you're <laughs> gonna get into that kind yeah. of money. Got to be yeah. drugs and
1: prostitution. I, I figured, yeah, I figured it was somebody that was, um, b- because my mindset wasn't where sure, it is of course, now. Of course. To me, it was like, okay, somebody's like a surgeon at the hospital yeah. making seven figures, or you know, a partner in a law firm, or you know, something along those lines, or like athletes, because we've got multiple professional sports teams in town here. And so I'm like, well, maybe this is where those guys get their rides from. I don't know. Um, but the funny thing was when I, when I really cut the cord on being an employee and then things started to click as a business owner and I started building a team and I started growing an organization and things like that. Pretty soon it was like, wow, I used to think I was awesome for making 125 grand a year. And you see the potential that you can do as a business owner, um, not just as like the potential to pay yourself a salary, but also just the added benefit that comes from owning a owning an organization and the advantages you can take by having an organization and things of that nature. And I remember I, I do it all the time. I look back and I go, and I was such a pretentious a-hole that I thought I was so good that I was making all this money. And the reality is at the end of the day, one, we were broke and we didn't want anybody to know. And two, it's really not that much money. In so the when you, of things.
0: you know, you're, you, you know, you describe a bit of a story, Matt, that really is kind of that rich dad, poor dad story. You had a dad that encouraged you to, you know, go get a job, you know, go get a union job because it pays better. All of the things that, that goes along, you know, I, I start to see, as you describe your story, I start to hear the shift in mindset, the shift in attitude all of the things that were going on. And there's different things. You know, you asked the question, was there a fork in the road that you took that you could have gone either way? Was there one of those defined, what I refer to now as a defining moment where you look at and you had to make a decision and you jumped off the cliff at some
1: point? Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. So in the summer of 2015, so, you know, going back, I said, we started flipping houses and probably right around the when the market crashed here in the United States. So like 2008-2009 was when we started getting into the rental game. We started slow, building up our portfolio, and a lot of it started from we would buy a house, we'd fix it up, and then we'd move out of it and turn it into a rental, and we just started kind of doing that. And then we eventually got to the point where we had enough cash that we would we went out and bought our first investment property that we had never lived in, which was really exciting to do. And in the summer of 2015. So this is like 2 years ago. We got to the point where I was still working as a senior PM. This was when I was making the 125k and working for somebody else and we got to the point where we added a unit and we looked at the financials and we said, "You know what? Our cash flow after reserves and expenses and all that kind of good stuff, our cash flow now covers our normal monthly bills." So the mortgage payment for the house we're living in, the the nice cars that we're driving currently, All of our, you know, food for the family, insurance, blah, 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 all of it's covered now by the cash flow. We had never taken salaries from that business. We had never taken even, I mean, we would do stuff like, you know, we'd have our corporate meeting on a cruise ship. And so we'd take the family on a cruise and we'd be like, well, this is where our corporate meeting is. And so you, you know, as a write-off kind of a thing. Um, but we never took benefits really. We just let the money roll so that we could buy more units. And at that point in that summer. I said, if we, if we wanted to, or if we had to, the rental business is now making so much money that we literally are financially free. And that was really, really exciting. The bad thing that happened at that point though, was I became a really bad employee because I no longer was, you didn't have that fear. So I think there's this fear that we have as employees for working for somebody else, which is, you know, here in the United States, 75% of Americans still live paycheck to paycheck. If they didn't get paid next Friday, they're going to run out of money by the time they get paid the following Friday. They just don't have anything in savings. They, they just, they live literally hand to mouth. And so, um, there's this fear. You've got to do what the boss wants to do, whether you like it or not. You've got to put up and shut up and show up because you need that paycheck. You can't live without it, and the minute you no longer need it, you gain this incredible amount of power, and it's within. It's not over anybody else or anything like that. But the thing was, all of a sudden, when the boss would come to me at Friday Friday night at five p.m. and say, "Hey, Matt, there's a mandatory meeting tomorrow Saturday morning at seven a.m. You're going to be here," where two months ago I'd have been like, "Yes, sir. See you tomorrow." Now it was like, "No." I'm not coming in on a Saturday. You need to give me more notice than quitting time the night before that. I got to change my plans with my family that I've already had for weeks so that I can come and accommodate you. What's going on. That's so important that we've got to come in on a Saturday. Can it wait till Monday? Well, no, it can't. Well, what are we talking about? And it was really something stupid that really could have waited until everybody got back together on Monday it was just kind of one of those things where this was guy. This is kind of how the guy ruled the company was, with this iron fist of well, I got a wild hair up my ass. It's Friday, I'm gonna make everybody come in tomorrow. Um, and so I just started saying no, like you know, this isn't how I'm gonna be treated. Yes, I've put up with in the past. No, I'm not putting up with it moving forward. And my my tenure did not last a whole lot longer <laughs> than. Well, uh, that's a few a, more months. I mean, that's that a cool, point.
0: that's, I mean, at, at that point, that's really the power of, you know, having that financial certainty, what we, you know, some refer to as financial freedom. So you got to a point where you could be in choice, where you could look at it and go, I, I you know, you may, right. you may have liked your job or you might've even stayed had you been respected and treated for the contribution that you were being. And so you may not, sure. have, you may have hung in there. So for you then defining moment was, yeah, I'm not putting up with this. Yeah, anymore. So
1: well, it, it, I started to, I, you know, I started to have the attitude, I guess. And then the thing was, um, probably about two months later, uh, it was New Year's Eve and I was the only one that wasn't told to stay home because it's New Year's Eve. And so I drove an hour into the office basically to get fired. And as a business owner now, this makes total sense, right? Cause if I bring you back in January, I got a whole new tax year. I got to do paperwork, you know, and that kind of thing. So if I'm going to let somebody go, it makes sense to let them go on the last day of the year. So New Year's Eve, I come into the office and, and I just knew, like, I just sure. had this gut feeling like today is my last day. Yeah, you're definitely- so I even got up early. I, you know, cleaned up the beard, nice, you know, pressed my shirt. And my wife's like, what are you doing? I'm like, I think today's my last day. She's like, shut up. And I said, no, I'm serious. Like, I just have this gut feeling like today's my last day. And I literally went into work, got fired. And I called her on the way home. It was like 10 a.m. And I said, "Hey, uh, so I was right." You know, I said, "Good news, bad news. Good news was I was right, <laughs> and yeah. I'm no longer employed. Good news is I don't have any stress over the weekend, holiday weekend. You know, New Year's Eve. Let's go out and celebrate that. Uh, I'm, you know, I don't have anything to worry about because I don't have a job to go to on Monday. Uh, bad news is I don't have a job anymore. And that was the fork in the road. The fork in the road at that point was." do I go get another job in industry, the industry that I've worked in now for close to 17 years? And do I, you know, do I, because I could, I I, I could have made three phone calls on that trip home and I would have had another job to go to on Monday morning. And it was like, or do we take the momentum that we've that we've had this year in growing our portfolio, reaching financial, you know, freedom or certainty, as you called it. And do we run with that And do we go headfirst in like we should have done years ago and just make this a a legitimate business and make it my hundred percent focus. And so that was the fork and it was scary because even though we had the, you know, the, the business had the money coming in to the point where we could pay our bills if we wanted it to, you know, we probably would have said that we wanted to have like at least six months of. Our expenses and reserves before I had pulled the plug on my job, which we didn't have, you know. That, like I said, that night was New Year's Eve, so we had some champagne, watched the ball drop in New York City, you know, on on the TV, sure. and just kind of sat there together and made the decision that you know what, I'm I'm not going back to be an employee. I'm going to be an entrepreneur moving forward, and and this is kind of the decision we're going to make, good, bad, or otherwise.
0: Uh, now, your is your wife involved with your business today, Matt?
1: She is. And so she hasn't always been right. So
0: she actually partnered with you on together. You guys came to the conclusion that you were going to start your real estate investing business and you got in it together. That was your, your moment. Now, what role do you guys play, you know, as partners in your business?
1: It's kind of adapted because she was, you know, she was a nurse and she was working at the hospital full time. And so I started this really by myself from the dining room table. Interestingly enough, it took about it took her about a year and a half before she started to really see the momentum that we were having, and she saw me struggling to kind of take it to the next level, and she said, "You know, hey, would it be helpful if I came and helped you?" And I was afraid of that I was afraid of okay we have a we have a good enough relationship, we're happy you know we've got you know kids, we've got a happy home, I'm happily married. I don't know how." that dynamic would work of you come to work with me cause she was part time at the hospital cause she had just finished up, you know, school to, uh, for a master's degree. So she had gone part time at the hospital. She said, I haven't started work yet. I, I have all this time. Would it help you? And I was like, I, you know, I don't know. And I was just kind of thinking like at home when it, there were a lot of times where we're kind of like fire and ice where we kind of butt heads a lot. And I thought, you know, I don't know if this is the best business arrangement. And the thing was, I had a mentor of mine who does work with his wife and he said, you know what, for entrepreneurs to be fully integrated with family and, and work is the best way to be. See, as an, as an employee, and this was even what I did my PhD dissertation on was work life balance. So as employees, it's really important to have that healthy work life balance. Whereas an entrepreneur, you can't turn it off. It never gets turned off. And so the more you can integrate family life and work life together all around, the better both will be. Every entrepreneur that I've met in the last few years, if their business is struggling, their relationship's going to struggle. If their relationship is struggling, their business is going to struggle. And conversely true. If their relationship is great, their business goes up. If their business is great, it helps. It boosts the relationship. And so the more integrated you can be, the better. And so we did some of those like personality profiles like DISC testing. And what we, what we interestingly enough found was that the reason we kind of butt heads a lot at home was because we are literally 180 degree opposites of each other when it comes to how do you look at problems? How do you look at solutions? How are you wired? How are you geared? And so what we realized was though, as a one, two combo in an organization, we were really kind of unstoppable. Because everywhere I'm weak, she's super strong and everywhere I'm super strong, she's weak and doesn't want anything to do with it. And so we really kind of figured out, okay, what would be a great fit for you to come in? And really it, it made all the sense in the world of how we're both wired that I'm the visionary, she's the integrator. So I'm the, I'm number one, she's number two. So, um, her official title is COO. Um, that may change eventually, but that's kind of how it works. So I, I'm in charge of the strategic vision of the company. I'm in charge of raising awareness for the business. And I'm in charge of raising private capital. So that's that's all I do at this point.
0: And she really takes it all and, and pushes sand, turns the knobs, sets up the dials, puts the infrastructure in place yeah, to support that vision. She's
1: completely in charge. I mean, at this point, and it was kind of scary because a couple months ago, I had this realization that I'm not running my own company anymore. Mm. And whether it's my wife running it or it was somebody else running it, it was kind of this scary moment, especially for a guy, you know, like I started this completely by myself from the dining room. And so to now have a team and to have employees and me not be the person really run, like, you know, I'm not captaining the ship anymore. It was like, wow, I'm really not in control here. I don't know what's going on in everything. And Losing that control for a type for a type A personality, I think, is a little difficult, but um it does help that I trust her immensely. And we, you know, we have meetings and things, and so I can kind of see where things are going and whatnot. But the other day we kind of laughed and I said, you know, really, if you made an analogy of how this works, it's you know, she's driving, she's driving. I'm in the passenger seat navigating, whereas occasionally I look up and I'm like, Hey, down the road up here. we're going to need to do this, this, and this. And she's like, all right, you know, put your head back down, do your thing. I got it. And she's really driving the, you know, she's driving the ship at this point.
0: So I want to go back a little bit, Matt. I mean, there's just in this last few minutes of speaking, you know, there's so many points of entry for conversation for me. And I, and, and because you go back to your PhD and your dissertation on life work, life balance, what did you come up with that? Because in, in my world, there's no such thing as work life balance as an entrepreneur there's just life right. and and you yep. know your life is your business and it's your vacations and it's your kids and it's your relationships and it's just life and you either are really really digging in your life or you're putting in corrections to say you know something i got to i got to slow down i got to you know take my foot off the gas or or spend more time it's it's just not there is no this or that it's all of it is that how you guys are finding it too now
1: oh absolutely yeah And and so it was really funny to look back on that whole study, like that whole time of doing all this research, everything out there is geared towards employees. So especially in the business world, you know, in higher education, the core function isn't to create business owners. It's to create really good middle managers. I mean, that's really what it is. Even, even at the PhD level, I'm writing a chapter for an academic book, uh, that should come out this fall where it's, it's really kind of a white paper for what we're doing today. And it, it's kind of a case study of me is the fact that when I went to start my own business, right. And do it legit and, and make it, you know, I'm diving in head first. I had a little bit of an arrogance to me. Cause it was like, I have a PhD in business. Like if anybody can start a successful organization, it should be me. Sure. You got right? this. No one's better prepared then I've got, I've got all the credentials. I have an MBA and I got a PhD in business. And the reality was, I I didn't know the first thing about starting a business.
0: That's hilarious. Okay. Okay. So let me go back a little bit because we're going to talk about a lot. Like we're going to, this is cool. This, I think this is a fantastic part of the conversation because it really, you know, in, in our world, you know, the real estate investment network, we're dealing really with real estate investors, small business owners, and I want to just hone in on a couple of things. You know, number one, I see a block often with real estate investors is that their significant other and them are not aligned. They're actually, and and I know you're also do education, you're supporting real estate investors all the time. And I think that people don't really understand that that's one of the biggest blocks there is, is, is in any success as a real estate investor is if your partner's not aligned with you and you're not on the same page you're in the trenches alone trying to figure it out as well as carry the load of home life, et cetera. What's your experience been with that, Matt?
1: I would say that I totally agree with that. Um, My personal opinion is if you're an entrepreneur and you don't want to work with your spouse, and I'm going to say this and it's not going to, it's not going to be a popular opinion. If you don't want to work with your spouse as an entrepreneur, it's, that's a direct reflection on the strength of your relationship. Yeah. Um, I agree with that by the the way. The thing is, It's completely, it's completely integrated. You can't turn it off. The more that your spouse understands what's going on at work, the more that they can get into your head and understand why you came home pissed off today or whatever it would be, the better it's going to be, the better communication you're going to have, the better they can support you. And at the end of the day, the more support you have from everybody around you, the more your pressure and noise in your life lowers. That being said though, is I do, I get a ton of people all the time. that are like, Oh my God, I can't believe you work with your spouse. That's gotta be awful. And I just, one I tell them is, Un- unless you've done it, you should try it. Don't knock it till you tried it. And two, if you really, truly can't imagine working with your spouse, like you should go talk to somebody together mm-hmm. because there's probably some really underlying things that need to be ferreted out and fixed before you're ever going to take yourself and your relationship and your business to the next level. What got you here today is what's going to hold you back tomorrow. My, I have a mentor that says that to me all the time. And he's like, Matt, you're stuck because you continue to try to do what it did, what, what, it, what you had to do to get here. And he goes in the fact that you can't let that go. Is the reason why you can't go to the next level.
0: Okay, hold you it. You have to stop. You got to stop right there because that is such an important point for people to understand. Uh, Mark Manson, you know, the subtle art of not giving a fuck. That book, if you haven't read it, really good book. But one of the and and there's parts of it that are awesome and some of it aren't. Anyways, that's a, a different conversation. But one of the things he said to that I thought was really brilliant. In order for you to change what your mentor is saying, in order for you to change and go to a next level, you have to take what you're doing today and actually make it wrong. That's the problem that people have is that their need to be right is so strong. And what your mentor is sharing with you and what we all have trouble learning is that you have to let go of what you're doing because it doesn't serve you going forward. It's just the the lesson and now you let go and you go on to what's next.
1: It's not just going to stall you out. It's actually that's the hurdle that's going to keep you from going to the next level. So th- I I want to give him credit since we're talking about it, but it's Alex Sharfen, C H A R F E N. He's got a podcast. It's called the Momentum Podcast. It's very very good. He's a very smart dude. Um, and so I owe him a lot of just you know helping with mindset and then also growing our organization. He's been a really good asset for us both both Amy, my wife, and and me.
0: So let me um let me keep going back because when you're building the business and and really what I want to speak to is as you you know, as as if you call yourself the CEO and visionary for your business, your wife being the COO, you talked about now you have staff. Was there a point, and then you're losing control, right? Your feeling of losing control where you weren't part of every detail that was going on, having to build your team, trust your team. Do you see time and time again, how was it for you? But I noticed... In my world of training and coaching that I'm doing with people, one of the most difficult things that they have to grasp is letting go and let somebody else do the job. So, in other words, paying somebody to do a job so that they have the time to do what they're good at. Did you see that in yourself as you were kind of developing your business?
1: Yeah, I did. You know, and it's a scary thing to hire somebody sure. when you do it in the first part. I mean, one, it's scary to pay yourself a salary if you're not making a ton. I think that's the first step. If you're not paying yourself, consistently you should be um you know because you're you're discounting your value to your family and things of that nature but when it comes to paying somebody else it's a scary thing to have this commitment now of okay uh oh, you know next week I got to pay them this much money I got to pay them this much money every week after that um but i you know there's a really good book called traction by Gino Wickman and uh, the author refers to this as like letting go of the vine and so there's this trust of, I've got, a, I've got all these things that I'm holding on to that i am retaining control on. And you've got to trust that when you let go, the team's got it or the person that you've hired and you've trained is going to take that over. And it's a, it's a, it's a comfort level thing. It's a trust thing. Um, and you have to be able to say, I hired the right person or I went in with the right mindset of who I needed. I found that person and I was comfortable in the hiring process to bring them in. I've given them adequate training and now it's time to just let them do their thing right, wrong, or otherwise we'll grow together. We'll grow them. The organization's going to grow. And the reality is if you're doing the right things to offload the right things, it's going to free you up so immensely that you're going to look back in a short period of time and go, I can't imagine not having This person, I can't imagine taking on those tasks again, because ultimately at the end of the day, it's all about, it's about elevating everybody to their highest and best use. And so if I bring somebody in and I can offload things that are uncomfortable for me or things that are time sucks for me, it frees me up to do the most important things that utilizes my abilities. So the reality was, I used to think that I needed to be really good at everything. I tried to be this like jack of all trades, master of none. Like I'm going to be good at everything. I'm good at a lot of stuff. It's actually kind of a little bit of a curse because like growing up, people were like, well, you could do anything. It's like, great. If I could pick one thing, that'd be fantastic. But I really am kind of interested in everything. The reality though, is when you really start to narrow it down and you peel the layers back, I think what most people are going to realize is you really aren't good at everything. You really kind of suck at a lot. And you just kind of make it work. And if you can find somebody that can take that task or or this series of tasks, that that really is their unique ability. That's their highest and best use. And you give it to them, what you're going to realize is you thought you were really good. But the reality was on a scale of one to a hundred, you were probably operating at a 60. And in your egotistical mind, you're going, I'm good at this. And then you see somebody who actually is good at it take it away from you. And they take it to the next level and you go. Whoa, okay, I wasn't good at that. I don't want it back because they're really good at it. And now all the time that I've been spending on these tasks, I've now I've now purchased that time back with their time. And now I can go do more of the things that I'm really actually good at. And that's how you grow. I mean, that's how an organization grows is identify where you as the leader are uncomfortable or what's taking your time away from your highest and best use and just immediately offload those to other people. And then you do it to them. You say, okay, what are you uncomfortable doing? We have this weird mentality in our culture and I'm sure it's the same thing. You know, you you guys up in Canada, it's not too much different uh, up there. We have, it's like this weird thing in the employment space where you go, okay, here's a list of all the responsibilities in the job description. You're going to love some of them. You're going to hate some of them. It's part of the job. You got to suck it up and you got to do it. And at the end of the day, as an employee, you, you get out of bed or you pull yourself out of bed and you go, well, I hate less than I like. So I'll go to work today. I mean, ultimately, if we narrow it down and make it black and white, that's really kind of the decision-making paradigm of an employee is I don't hate the things that I hate enough to quit. Right. (laughs) So, but you're, you're basically told, Hey. Sorry that you don't like this aspect of the job. You got to suck it up and do it. I think in an entrepreneur world, in in this thing where we as business owners have the ability to create these great organizations, these thriving organizations is we have a responsibility to do the same thing with our employees that we ultimately are trying to do for ourselves, which is, and I encourage all of everybody on the team. I want you every day to write down where you were uncomfortable yesterday. Did we have you do something that you absolutely hated to do? You know, is there something in your job description that you're like, you know what, Matt, I just, I I don't enjoy this at all. Here's the thing. We need to hire somebody to do that. So you don't have to do it because it, that's taking your focus and your energy and your abilities away from the things that you actually enjoy about the job that we have you doing. And it's not your highest and best use. And so now, obviously You might not be in a situation where you can afford to hire somebody new to offload like one or two tasks from somebody. But the reality is you probably can hire an assistant who says, okay, I'm going to take these three things from this person. I'm going to take these three things from this person. And then there's a couple of things, Matt, that you're still doing. And now we can create at least a part-time job for somebody who comes in and can do all of these things and is going to do them really well. And it, that was a, this was a mental block for me. Because when I first did it and I was by myself, I knew I needed an assistant. And what I did was I literally wrote down all the things that I was doing all day that I hated or that were taking time away from the things that I really wanted to be doing. And so I made this long list and I looked at it and I was like, this list sucks. There's not a soul in this world that's going to look at this list and be like, Ooh, there's a good job. But the thing was that that was me. That's how I felt about it. The reality was I made a job description out of that list. I posted it on a bunch of job boards. I had like 300 applicants that were literally excited about that list to come work for me to do all of this shit that I hated to do. That to me was like the light bulb went off and I went, whoa, okay, this is why we're all different. This is why we're all wired differently. And then there's people out there who see the things that I hate and they go, this is my dream job.
0: Well, sure. It goes back to—I mean, it goes back to your wife, right? You know, she, your guys are 180 degrees apart. She loves the things that you really are good at and don't like, and vice versa, right?
1: And that was part of it. Like part of me letting go of the vine with her was obviously she's—you know, she's my number two at the office, but she's my number one at home, right? And so there's a lot of things that were stressing me out at work, like really stressing me out. Like people call and complain about something. And it just ruins my day. Right. I'm not wired to handle that, you know, and that kind of thing. And what Alex told me, Alex Sharfin says, he goes, do you think Richard Branson ever hears about somebody who bitches because their Virgin flight got delayed or canceled? He's like, do you think Tim Cook ever hears because somebody's home screen on their iPhone doesn't work the way it should? He's like, hell no, they don't. He's like, they've got layers of protection and support. And he's like, just because you don't have an organization the size of them doesn't mean you don't need that same level of support. And so the interesting thing was when we had this conversation, Amy says, well, I have no problem handling that kind of stuff. Let me handle it. Let me be that person, you know, and, and coming from the hospital setting, you know, people would yell at her every day about what the hospital was or wasn't doing to their family members. You know, she'd get threatened to get sued. Like, I'm going to sue you and the hospital, you know, because, You know, I want pain meds for my loved one and, and uh, we can't get it for two more hours. You know, I mean, just dumb stuff like that. And, but for me, I had a hard time letting go of the vine because I'm like, oh my God, no, these phone calls are awful. These people are unrealistic. The last thing I want to do, because I love you so much is give this to you and have you handle it. And she's like, seriously, she goes, it ruins your day. And she goes, I don't give a shit. And I'm like, wow. Wow. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's so great, love that. Story. All right. Well, I'm gonna. Uh, I'll give this to you then. And she, she started taking it over. And the thing was, people when they're like, when when entitled, unrealistic expectations. When these people, all of a sudden, like things change. Like it just throws them in a loop. So all of a sudden, it was like, well, no, you can't talk to Matt. And they'd be like, they would just lose their minds. Well, why? Well, because this is the new organizational structure. You deal with me. And she handles it so well, like she's just so perfect at it, and the immediate momentum for me to not have to deal with that anymore, not have to see it anymore, not have to like i I could just laser focus on the things that I really should be spending my time on doing, and she it doesn't even phase her. she just handles it. um she doesn't lose stride when the phone calls over or the email's done. She just goes about the rest of her day and completely unfazed or at least she seems like she is so it's uh it's it's really an awesome dynamic to have the right person in the right seat doing those things
0: let's go back a little bit matt uh, to the conversation around staff and you know building a team a couple of questions that i for our listeners from your perspective i coach small business owners and support them around they look at the cost of an employee. Did you have a shift at some point where you realize it's not a cost of an employee? You're actually investing in somebody and that's freeing up your time to do what you're brilliant at. But would you say that's probably one of the biggest epiphanies that any small business owner has to have?
1: I think so, you know, because for us here, you know, let's say, let's say to hire somebody is going to cost you $40,000 a year. I think as a small business owner, you go, I can't afford that. I can't afford $40,000 a year. And the thing is, you're not going to pay them $40,000 a year tomorrow. You're you're probably going to pay them like 800 bucks next week. Sure. And so you're going to get some kind of production out of them before you owe them anything, first and foremost. And then the reality is it's an investment in the organization, but also even more important is you are buying back your own time.
0: Well, okay. But let's stop there for a second because here's what I see, and this is just a conversation, but you're buying back your time. Now the reality of some of that psychologically going back to you can't do what you're doing today to go to the next level of what you need to do tomorrow. So in other words it's that shift that has right. to be made. I find that when I'm coaching small business owners and and I and I struggle with it myself sometimes the psychology of it although I don't you know I don't waste a lot of time on it anymore. The reality of it is, is if you're looking at it and small business owners will go, well, if they hire somebody it's a cost. Secondly, If they hire somebody, guess what? They're a little exposed now. So what are they going to do next? Because they're hiding behind the fact that they don't have time to do what they need to do next. Now they use that as an excuse. If you remove the excuse, then it's like, okay, now what? That's how I see that breakdown, if I'm explaining that correctly. Do you see what I'm talking about in that conversation? No, totally. Yeah,
1: Totally. You know, it's funny. You know, I I worked with a guy uh, for the past year who's like a sales and marketing trainer. And he says all the time, I mean, one of his coined phrases is fuck your excuses. Right. And I love it only because the reality is we even, you know, my wife, Amy even started to sit, tell me that, like I would start bitching about something and she'd go, you know, after your excuses, Matt. And it was like, it's just, it's that like wake up call of the biggest hurdle to your success. The biggest hurdle standing in your way is that person looking back at you in the mirror every day. Mm -hmm. And when you can get out of your own head and you can get out of your own way, you can really truly tap into, you know, this, this potential that you have. And the step one is stop listening to all the bullshit in your head that you keep telling yourself of why this isn't going to work. What's going to happen. Um, I'm a huge believer in hiring assistants. Mm -hmm. I don't hire, hire people. I don't hire, like, I'm not going to go out and hire an acquisitions person. I'm not going to go hire a, a CFO I'm not going to, you know, I'm just going to hire assistants and then I'm going to elevate them to their highest and best use. And I'm going to have in my mind going in, here's kind of where I want this person to ultimately end up. But everybody starts at the bottom. And the reason is because they learn the organization and we can elevate them to where they ultimately are going to be the best fit. Because they might end up somewhere, like, let's say they've got a financial mind. They might be a great accounts payable, accounts receivable kind of person. But they don't make it all the way to CFO for whatever reason, right? I hire a CFO. It doesn't really work out. So it's, it's kind of, we hire for culture and for fit, not necessarily here's where it makes, you know, here's what I need today. Kind of a thing.
0: When you go back, when you talk about culture, so I'm, you know, within our office and my organization. So my, my, my wife and I own four businesses, uh, three very operational type businesses with staff, and we're very, very focused on culture and environment. And when you talk about culture, are you looking at, when you're interviewing somebody, for example, you're actually looking at who are they and how are they going to show up? And will they fit in with the culture and the environment that you're trying to create in your business? Yeah,
1: absolutely. I don't, I mean, here's the thing. At the end of the day, I can train anybody to do anything. So if I find, if, if somebody comes across my path, that's like an A plus person, you know, they've got an incredible work ethic. They've got a great attitude. They're going to show up and provide momentum to the team in one way or another. I want to hire 10 of those people. I don't even know what to do with them yet. I don't know where they're ultimately going to end up because I don't know what they like and dislike. We haven't ferreted all that kind of stuff out yet, but we'll create roles for people or we'll put, you know, I want them on the team because those are the right kind of people, right? I can teach you how to you know, write an offer, I can teach you how to go do an inspection. I can teach you how to find deals. You know, whatever it is that we're gonna be doing, I can teach you how to send an email blast or we can teach you how to market or whatever it would be. So it's more of a we want the right fit.
0: So when you uh, when you look at your leadership style, Matt, if you're giving some people in the world of treating their real estate investing like a business, building a team, is there a leadership guidance or style that you have that you would Suggest that they get support around or some guidance that you could give in the leadership
1: well I mean you know obviously having a formal education in in business i I'm, you know I'm going to know all of the buzzwords of like here's you know servant leader transformational leader you know all those kinds of different types of leadership I've always tried to aspire to be that transformational leader where and I think I really honestly believe we all have a unique ability and you have to you know probably a, the number one thing that we can do as human beings is figure out what that unique ability is. And then how can you best serve the people in your life around you? um, And then the greater good of everybody that you come in contact with using that for me personally, I I honestly believe that for me is, is education and teaching. Like I, I love to, I love to share what I know with everybody else. Um, I think that was what kind of, you know, steered me towards getting a terminal degree was to go in the teaching route. Once I did that, I absolutely hated higher education. That's a whole other topic of discussion there. Um, But the thing is that that's what I really enjoy. So the ability to grow the team from a professional and personal development standpoint, like I would love to have, obviously we want everybody that comes into the organization to stay with us forever. And we kind of feel like we're growing a family, not necessarily a company. But at the end of the day, if somebody came to me and said, you know, Matt, I, I see what you guys have built. I really want to do the same thing. I'd be like, let me help you. You know, I I would never want to hold somebody back. I want to, I want to help elevate everybody to their highest and best potential And and not just people within our organization too. I mean, we get people that reach out to us on social media all the time. They always tell me, they're like, I'm, I'm amazed that you actually got on the phone with me and spent an hour helping me figure out what I should do with my life or whatever it would be. And it doesn't matter really at the end of the day. I'm not looking to monetize every relationship I come across. For me personally, I, I do believe in karma big time. And it's all about planting the seeds and 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 then they'll grow and and whatnot. But from a leadership standpoint, for me personally, is I want everybody that comes and works with us to love what they do, love you know, you don't have to be BFFs with everybody that works here, but uh, for the most part, I want you to enjoy the people that you're with. And I want you to be able to function at your highest and best use with the least amount of pressure and noise around you. And that's, that I kind of feel like that's my job as the CEO is I've got to protect the organization. And that means I got to protect everybody in it from everybody else and also themselves. I agree. And so I think it's important for me to have these conversations of saying, how can we help you? How can we help you get to the next level? Where do you see yourself going? Um, because at the end of the day, if somebody aspires for more and you don't provide them the opportunity, they're going to go somewhere else and find it.
0: Well, I've always had a, you know, I'm, you know, a bit of a sports background in my world, and I've worked with lots of athletes over the years, a number of them. It's the business my wife and I, one of the businesses that we we're involved in that she still does. But I always look at it from a point of view is that if you take any given player and look at the position that they're in, my job as CEO is to actually support them in being the best player they can be. And that's through development, that's through training, that's any number of things that they need that we see that they can be supported in. You have your mentor. How often, or your coach, whatever, you, you refer to him as a mentor, um, your guide. Do you talk to him frequently? Where do you, how much support do you get from outside?
1: You know, it's interesting because I've worked with, I've worked with three separate people in the last couple of years and you get different levels of support based on what, you know, what the coach or consultant is willing to give you. And then kind of the nature of that person too. So right now I'm working with Alex Sharf and he, I would say he's our business coach, consultant, whatever. He is definitely the backbone of helping us like grow and scale and and kind of the strategic direction of where we want to be. I probably talk to Alex every day, whether it would be on, we, we talk a lot on Voxer, you know, which is just a messaging app, uh, or we talk on Facebook, uh, but in one form or another, we talk and it's not, it's not always about business. I mean, we talk about, we have a lot of similar interests. So when we'll talk about whatever, um, we've kind of developed a friendship aside from the business relationship as well. But if I'm struggling with something, if I got something in my head that I can't get past or whatever it would be, I'll just bounce it off of him. It's a great resource to have. It's a very quick conversation. You know, we don't belabor points and things of that nature. Um, and then I do have a real estate mentor who has really helped me from the tactical side of the investing business. And we probably talk once or twice a week, I would say, and same kind of thing. It's just kind of like, what are you struggling with right now? What would, what would help, you know, get you unstuck? You know, what can I help you with? You know, do you need advice on something? know, that kind of thing.
0: So you're getting outside guidance. You have surrounded yourself with support that way. Do you, are you pretty clear on the vision for your business? But if you, if I was to ask you, what is the vision for your business? What, what would you be able to describe it in a kind of articulated in a way that people could get?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, our vision for our business really is to, um, you know, cultivate the relationships that we need to where we can create a, you know, our goal, I would say in the next, 18 months or so, 12 to 18 months would be to create somewhere between thirty and fifty K a month in passive cash flow from our investment holdings um, while also building our team and becoming a completely remote organization. That's our vision. We want everybody that works with us to be able to work from anywhere. Um we want to be able to work from anywhere. Um that's just kind of the lifestyle design that we set out, you know, a few months back to say, hey. Can we create a remote organization? We think we can. I know some people that are, that are, they're doing it. So we, we're kind of using them as a model a little bit. But it's, it kind of came down that point of what's important. You know, there is no work-life balance. So could I run the company? Could Amy run the company from an island? Well, sure. So we, we actually kind of like test drove it um, back in August. We were in Hilton, We went down to Hilton Head. Um, Hilton head Island for, uh, just a week long family vacation. We closed six deals while we were on the Island. And for us, that was, that was a huge win because we probably, I mean, combined the two of us probably worked maybe three hours a day. And the rest of the time we were just hanging out, going to the beach, going to the pool, spending time with the kids. And we did what we did. You know, we really have created a system where. As long as you've got an internet connection, you're good to go. Like we don't even use landline or even cell service anymore for phones. Like everything's internet based to where like next summer we're going to Europe for a week and a half and we want to, we're going to test it again at that point, you know, so we've got 12 months to say, okay, can we really be completely virtual to where everybody knows what their roles and responsibilities are? And can, you know, so like, can our marketing person be sitting in California? Can our acquisitions person be sitting in Florida? Can we be in you know sitting at a cafe in Copenhagen and everybody can communicate and everybody's getting their job done, and it doesn't matter where we are. So that's kind of like the big vision. That's
0: a great vision uh, by the way.
1: of where we want to be. That's great. Thank you. Yeah, we're very excited about it. So on the real estate
0: side of it, Matt, you grew your portfolio. You and Amy grew your portfolio to the point where you're paying your bills out of your cash flow. Now, were you still doing flips back then? Were you generating income through flips, or was it primarily just a buy and hold model that you had had where you'd built the cash flow?
1: We were flipping, um, but it was kind of like it's weird. The price of entry here in our market is very, very low. So for flipping there's a lot of people that can get in because I mean, you can buy a house here, you know, that's flippable for under for definitely under $40,000. So that's, yeah. it doesn't take a whole lot of money for somebody to like scrape it together and say, Oh, and then they watch a couple episodes of TV shows about flipping and then they go, I can flip a house. So the competition is very, very strong and people will flip houses here for like a $5,000 profit. That's to me is insane. Sure. And um there's a lot of risk involved to only make five thousand dollars. So for us at the time when we were employees working for other people, it was like we would flip a house if it was a home run. And a home run for us was can we make at least, you know, twenty five, thirty thousand dollars. Um so we would flip a house occasionally, uh, but when I went full full in, you know, when we had that fork in the road New Year's Eve twenty fifteen, uh, that next year we flipped eight houses on top of you know, grow, continuing to grow the portfolio and whatnot.
0: So, so mostly your model is buy and hold stuff, renting it out for good cash flow. And is there a specific, you know, model of home, like a? Is there a specific style of home that you're buying and a specific tenant profile that you, you you're seeking? And are you basically, are you all over the U.S. or, or are you investing close to home kind of thing?
1: No, predominantly, you know, we're in the three markets that I mentioned earlier, just here in the Midwest. Um, I feel like, especially as a buy and hold person, you know, when you're doing some rehabs and then you're putting tenants in things of that nature, I almost feel like it's better to go deeper than it is to go wider. You know, if I go into a new market, like, uh, you know, where I went to school is about two hours West of here went for my engineering degree. If I go into that market, I need a whole nother set of resources over there. I need property management. I need contractors. I need, you know, everything. I got to start all over from scratch again. Whereas if I go deeper in this market, I maybe only need to add like maybe an extra inspector. Maybe I got to add an extra acquisitions person, but I can do a whole lot more business with the infrastructure that I've already created here to go deeper, not wider. So I like that thought process. So yeah, we are just predominantly here in the markets that we serve here we're not, we're not all over the United States.
0: And then you're buying single family bungalows, condos. What's your target?
1: So we were, when we started getting into it, it, it was like kind of like the shiny penny. I call it uh, you know, shiny object syndrome. Sure. So it was like, you'd hear somebody goes, I'm making a killing doing college rentals. And I'm like, Oh, I'm going to do college rentals. And then somebody would be like, well, I'm making a killing doing duplexes. You know, I want to buy a duplex. And the next thing, you know, you've got this like mishmash hodgepodge portfolio where every asset is like totally different than the next one. And there's goods and bads to that. Uh, you know, the good, the good side is uh, it's incredibly diversified. <laughs> <laughs> you sure? um, the, the bad side and you get a, you get a taste of what does it, what does it mean to own and operate a duplex? What does it mean to own and operate a small apartment building? What's it mean to own and operate a vacation rental, a single family home? You know, there's goods and bads to each of those asset classes. The bad side is it's an absolute mess from the standpoint that nothing is the same. There are similarities, obviously, but there are a lot of differences. And so we really, really quickly decided, wow, we really don't like going into anything less than like a C-grade neighborhood. Um, We didn't like the tenant class. We didn't like dealing with the tenant class that we were encountering. We didn't like the consistency. And we didn't like the quality of the homes and just all that kind of stuff. So we, you know, for us personally, and it and really comes down to your personal preference. It also comes down to, too, how much are you self-managing? How much do you have a management company that's doing it for you? Or do you have people on your team that are doing that for you? Because obviously, if you're doing it yourself, then you want as much basically on autopilot as possible. At least that's my opinion. And so the nicer you can go in the areas the better tenants you're going to have, the less headaches you're going to have, the, you know, the lower maintenance it's going to be from an overall standpoint. At least that's my personal opinion. So at this point, we really like single family homes in uh, A, B, and C neighborhoods. And we really kind of feel like that's our bread and butter mix for what we're doing in our portfolio. We've done duplexes for us personally. We manage a lot of it ourselves. I didn't really like being kind of like the the domestic dispute police in small apartment buildings and medium-sized apartment buildings. It's like you get this mentality where tenants go, I'm living in an apartment. So they expect when they move in that you're going to hear people on either side of them. You're going to hear somebody above you or below you. Occasionally you're living in an apartment, but in a duplex for some reason, it's like both parties feel like they own the whole thing. And then it's your job to kind of like, settle the disputes of, well, they're being loud again. And for me, I was just like, you know what, this is, this, this sucks. And so what we did was we took all of our doubles, we put them with the property manager and we said, okay, now the property manager can get those phone calls. We don't have to deal with it, but we're not adding more of those, even though the numbers look really good on paper from a cash flow standpoint.
0: Investors are coming in with investment capital in your model. Are you doing joint ventures with them on a specific property or like co-venture? I don't know what the terminology, if it's different in the U S than Canada, is that one of the things that you do?
1: Yeah, we do a couple different things. Um, I would say 90% of what we do right now with private capital is going to be basically just like straight debt. So we'll take it, we'll take it on. We'll bring you in as what we call a uh, capital partner. We're going to pay you an interest rate.
0: What kind of rates are, what, what, what rates are you paying these days? What do you, what kind of rate are you paying your investors?
1: Um, I would say anywhere, you know, anywhere from eight to 15% is pretty normal, yeah, depending on what it is sure. for, for deals. And it, it's kind of comes along the lines of obviously the deal needs to make sense. You know, if we're making 10% on a deal, I, I really can't afford to pay you 15% long-term I can pay 15% short-term. Sure. So the numbers just need to work overall for it to make sense for the deal. Cause we don't want to put ourselves in a bad situation, obviously financially, but, and then we also look at it too. Of, I joke that really at this point, I'm kind of like this air traffic controller of like, okay, here's money coming in that we got to deploy. This person's getting paid out two months from now. So we've got to, we've got to make sure that money's coming in and going out. And, and do, do we keep it moving? Cause if it's not moving, we're paying interest on money. That's sitting, um, and things of that nature. But at the end of the day. Yeah, we, it, it's kind of like, Hey, if you only want to lock your money up for six months, I'm not going to pay you as high of an interest rate as you might like If you're going to give it to us for two years, right? Cause six months, I got to go back to work almost immediately to replace that money in some fashion. Yeah. So it's a lot more work on our part. So we're not going to pay you as well to do that kind of a thing on a short term, uh, basis, but we like to, you know, we, tr- we try to encourage people to do at least 12, to 24 months. We do occasionally on bigger stuff, we'll do deals where we do a smaller percentage with an equity piece on the back end. So if we're like, for an example, just for easy math, apartment complex, purchase price is a million dollars. We think that at the end of the day, it's going to be worth two. We'll borrow money at a set interest rate for the down payment. You know, we'll finance 75% of it. We raise private capital to do the initial 25% down piece, go to the bank as a team. And then we give them a piece of the equity on the back end so that when we do sell it, they, they have a piece of that million that's going to be left over on the back end. So we're not paying them a super high rate going in, but they know that they've got an ownership stake in, in the back end equity.
0: Yeah, and they're excited. So we about do those that. kinds of things. Got it. Cool.
1: And then what we've also done too on some deals, which is pretty cool, is we've given them that back end piece. We restructure the debt 100% with conventional funding. We pay them back 100%. They still retain the ownership, and they get cash flow from the rentals on the back end. They really love that because now they've got all of their money back, and now they're getting passive cash flow, and they're not having to manage the units themselves. So those are cool deals. So,
0: Matt, as we kind of start to wind the show down a little bit, you know, first off, I want to say that listening to and hearing about your journey and, and what you're doing and what you're striving to achieve in your businesses is, is, for me, it's pretty inspiring and I love your story. So, you know, I want to say right away, you know, I'll say it again later, but certainly thanks for this part and sharing your story. It's been really, really interesting too, because we don't know each other. I mean, this is really the first time we've had any kind of an extended conversation, right. you know, uh, between Cheryl and your assistant, we got set up to be on this call finally. So it's been a right. while, <laughs> so it's been a while happening. But tell me, let's just get into some things that you know, you've learned along the way. You've, uh, you, know, you're, you are a smart guy, entrepreneurial, got your business going. You know, When you sit today and you look back at your 18-year-old self, what, what advice would you give your 18-year-old self today?
1: That's a good question. You know, because I, it, it's hard to sit here and say, well, I would do something different, right? Because the success that we, we're having right now you have to say, okay, are you happy with where you are today? Are you happy with where you see yourself going in the future? If you are, then everything that's led up to this point, good and bad has brought you to this point right now. Totally. So I can't, I can't sit here and say, if I was 18 again, I would do this or that or something else, because that could have changed the path completely good or bad. Who knows? Mm-hmm. I do wish that I, you know, if there was anything I could possibly change, was I did get the bug for real estate and real estate investing, probably at least a good 10, 12 years before I, I really took it seriously and I let life continuously get in the way. The only advice that I think I would definitely give to the 18 year old version of myself would be, there's never going to be a right time for anything you're considering doing in life whether it's starting a business, taking a leap of faith to go do your own thing, start a family, any of that kind of stuff, there's never the, the stars are never going to align enough just do it. Take action, take imperfect action and just do something.
0: Okay, this is a total reverse of that question. What do you want to tell your 70-year-old self? What would you tell your 70-year-old self as you sit here today?
1: You know, it, I don't think anybody's going to ever Somebody, I I saw this a while back and then I forgot it, but I saw it again. Somebody posted a meme on Facebook and it said something like, hell is having to come face to the face with the person that you could have become. Mm. And to me, I sit there and I go, yeah. I mean, for a driven entrepreneurial, like personality type to have to, to, to die and come face to face with this person of if you had worked harder, if you had tried more, if you had done this, done that, whatever it would be. And it doesn't necessarily come, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be from a business standpoint, but what if you had spent more time with your family? What if you had spent more time doing the things that you love? Any of that, what could that person have been having to come face to face with that to me says, whatever it is that you choose to do with your time needs to be meaningful every day. And as long as you are doing something that when you wake up today, you say, I want my life to have intention. I want my day to have intention. And when I go to bed tonight, I'm going to feel like, okay, I had set out the day with intention and I accomplished what it was, or at least I made progress towards that goal. I don't know that you could sit there at 70 and look back and go, I didn't give it all I had. If you approach it from that, that mentality going in. And that's really what we try to do. I mean, literally Amy and I, every day we get up, we get the kids kind of doing their thing, get them with the babysitter. And then we go for a walk every morning together and we talk about what's your intention for the day? What's my intention for the day? What's the top three things that at the end of the day you want to have accomplished? And then the really cool thing, and this is where we talked about like the full integration of relationship and business together as entrepreneurs is I know that. If what I want Amy to do, or if I'm going to dump something on her plate, if it's not her top three that we've already talked about, then what I'm going to do is I'm going to send her an email. It's going to go in her inbox. And then some point time later on, she'll get to it. She'll see it. And it's, it gets it out of my head where I don't have to think about it anymore. And it's not a fire for her because it's not in her top three. And we've, we've both aligned ourselves for the day and we've both agreed not only as husband and wife, but also as business partners. This is the top three things for each of us to accomplish today. And the same thing, she knows what my top three are. And like yesterday, she asked me to do something like, you know, go through some mail or something like that. And I just put it on my desk and she's like, you're not going to do that. I'm like, it's not my top three. And she's like, oh, you're right. And that was like, <laughs> that was the end of the discussion. Right. Whereas, you know, a couple years ago, it would have been like, you know, you imagine this husband and wife team where she's like, well, I told I just told him to go through the mail and he just put it on the table and he walked away from it. You know what I mean? That kind of thing? That sure, dynamic? Sure. Whereas now we have this full alignment and integration and it's it's a beautiful thing. Yeah. I mean it really is. I can't say that our relationship has been better ever than it is right now. And it's really because we've become more integrated with work and life at home.
0: You know, there's a, you know, my one of my key philosophies in life is that my life is a reflection of who I'm being, not what I'm doing. And, you know, my wife and I are always very aware of who we're being with each other or in any of the relationships we have, who we are being in business. And, and, you know, interesting about you, Matt, is that I know a lot of engineers and you don't come across as having an engineer brain, by the way. So I'm just noticing that. And that's, that's a compliment.
1: I've been told that my whole, my whole engineering career. And then the other side of it is like, I'm very heavily tattooed, which I've gotten more tattooed as I've become, you know, a full-time entrepreneur. Like in June, I got my hands tattooed and that was really to me it was symbolic of I'm never going back to being an employee. Yeah. Cuz we always referred to hand tattoos as job stoppers. <laughs> sure. That you, yeah, know, you got full sleeves, so right? I have full sleeves. I've got both my hands tattooed. I've got a full back piece. Like I've I've got probably close to 500 hours of tattoo work. I had sleeves as an engineer but I wore a shirt and tie every day yeah. and with a long sleeve shirt, you didn't know.
0: You're a classic setting yourself up for judgment that would absolutely throw people for a huge loop. If they were to only assess who you are by, you know how you appeared because of the tattoos, because you got some, you got sleeves and like you say on your hands, et cetera. So
1: it's just right. interesting. It's cool. Yeah, I, I I've always enjoyed being, a little bit of the anti-stereotype sure. in the fact of like, now that I'm not really a practicing engineer, I mean, I've made my, I've maintained my licenses, so I'm still licensed in multiple States to actually do design and, and stamp work and all that kind of stuff. I'll never get rid of those just because it was such a pain in the ass to get them in the first place. Like there's something about letting that go that I just go, no, I can't. Um, hilarious. as weird as that would be, but at the same time too, I don't look like an academic either. So I don't look like your stereotypical, you know, college professor or somebody who has a terminal doctorate degree. But I really like that. Very unassuming that standpoint.
0: So people aren't seeing this because we're on a Skype call. I'm in my, uh, you know, I'm in my poolside studio. Uh, You're in in your office and I can see you through Skype. Uh, You are having glasses that are kind of a, a tinted glasses. Is that what's what the style of the the tinted glasses?
1: oh so really it's a it's a blue blocking lens, so it blocks blue light got it and from the standpoint of if you could see my desk, I've got three twenty seven inch monitors that that's what my it's my workspace, and then I work under fluorescent lights unfortunately, and so you know the brain this is gonna be like a a nerdy we're gonna go nerdy here <laughs> okay, for a second nerdy, but yeah the um the The brain uses 40% of the energy that your body consumes throughout the day. So just, just for brain function, the direct pathway to your brain is through your retina, through your eyes. And so if you have eye strain from being in junk light, looking at these bright blue screens that our bodies were never intended to stare at all day, it puts this immense amount of taxation on your system. And so the glass has cut that junk light out and it helps to perform better. You'll, you know, the interesting thing is if you get a pair of these, they, they look, they're, they're nerdy as hell. Like I'll just be perfect.
0: <laughs> you kind of remind me of Paul my Schaefer wife... with Dave Letterman, you know? Yeah, yeah,
1: exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I think he was doing it cause he was a rock star, right? Yeah. But like the funny thing is my wife, Amy made fun of me for months. I would wear these things indoors nonstop and she would make fun of me all the time. She's like, you look like a total dork. One day she was telling, you know, and she got headaches all the time and I knew that it was from staring at the screen at work and staring at the screens at home, you know, whether you're on the iPad or you're on your computer or your phone or whatever it would be. And I said, here, you got a horrible headache here. Where are my glasses? And within five minutes, she was like, I immediately felt my eyes relax, my headaches gone. And I said, oh, interesting. And so then I said, well, okay. So I took them back and then. Like two days later, I caught her wearing them and I actually took a picture and I posted it on Facebook and I was like, you know, who's the nerd now or whatever. And the thing was, she started, she got to the point where she stole them so much that I had to go buy this pair because she's got my other pair. And now we're this like total nerdy couple because, you know, we'll wear these like meetings things and everyone's like, what's up with the orange sunglasses? And When you, when you wear them, you see the immediate benefits from it, but they are nerdy. I, I'm a big, I'm a big fan of function over fashion for sure. Yeah. And, uh, but it's kind of become a signature thing too. Like people are always, you know, if I don't wear them and I'm on like a live video, people are like, where's your glasses at? You know, that kind of thing. So it's
0: awesome. Okay. So, uh, once again, we wind down rapid fire questions. You ready, Matt? Sure. Okay. What's your favorite swear word? Oh, fuck, for sure. Yeah, for sure. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the gates? Well done. On a scale of 1 to 10, how weird are you? Uh,
1: probably nine and a half.
0: Yeah, see, you know, I got to say <laughs> something about that. You know, like, um, it's interesting about how people consider themselves weird. Like, everybody's weird. I've got guys that say they're 12. And well, everybody's weird. Everybody's weird. So everybody. But, but I think that you, you're not. I don't. I, I, you're a really interesting character, by the way. I, I just have enjoyed this conversation immensely, and as I do with all mine. But I don't see you as weird. And if you're that guy, like I look at me and I go, I'm not weird. I'm just who I am. And so I'm not weird. Yeah, to Yeah,
1: I, I get people tell me all the time that I'm really cool, and I don't know if it's because, like, I'm real. I'm just who I am, sure. And I'm, I'm like, and I'm tattooed and that kind of thing. I'm kind of a bigger dude, like you know. Obviously, we we can see each other, but yeah. the listeners can't. I mean, I'm, I'm probably six one, two forty. I used to bodybuild a lot, so I'm a big dude. Yeah. I, you know, I've got a big personality kind of a thing. I'm heavily tattooed, and so I think that you know people tell me all the time they're like, "Man, you're really cool," and I go, "I'm not though." Like, and I, uh, it was funny. I mean, I know these are rapid fire questions, but. I remember being in the gym and I was there on a Saturday and I was working out and I had just got done with the workout. And so I'm like, I, I, you know, I think I had a pair of gym shorts on and that's all I was wearing in the locker room. And there was like an eight year old boy who was in there with his dad. And I remember him whispering to his dad and he goes, dad, look at that guy. He's all tattooed. And then he goes, and his dad goes, don't stare at him. And he goes, he must be really tough. <laughs> yeah, yeah, And I, and I turned to the kid and I said, or I just want everybody to think I am, you know, but I will tell you, like, if you want to make yourself cooler, like, you know, with cars, if you want to make a car faster, the best way you can do it is put a racing stripe on it. Sure. Right? Sure. It's the same thing. You want to be cooler in life? Just go get a bunch of tattoos. <laughs> it, it, it serves zero purpose in terms of that, but it's all a perception thing. What are you so, not very good at? Multitasking horrible
0: room desk or car what do you clean first
1: room desk or car Ooh. neither none <laughs> of the above. Like, i'm I, I live in a total state of organized uh like chaos yeah but i would say probably my desk first favorite tune do you have one not really like one song that i put on just to jam out and it kind of changes i pretty much like anything but country
0: i'm on that page too favorite movie fight club oh it's a great movie yeah they're making a second one what are you grateful for my family Hmm. awesome as i always am with my guests i'm grateful for you being on the show today i too am grateful for for my family it's been a great great chat look forward to doing it again and uh dr matt motel Thank you very much for your time and uh, we'll circle back again. Thanks pal. All
1: right. Thank you.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. If you found value in the podcast, please take the time to rate and review and share with others, share with your friends. As it is my goal to always improve and to provide the highest value for you, the listener, if you have any comments, suggestions, or questions you'd like answered, please email me at ceo@raincanada.com. That's CEO at reimcanada.com. I look forward to hearing from you and until next time,
1: Patrick O.